Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. For many, the history of the Mughal Empire looms heavy over contemporary South Asian social imaginaries. The lightning rod figure within modern-day myths about the past is the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb. Some think of him as a violent Muslim fanatic who went out of his way to oppress Hindus and destroy their temples. Others consider his nearly 50-year reign one of the most consequential for pre-modern South Asian history. Audrey Trushke wanted to probe the pre-modern archive in order to understand the historical life and legacy of Aurangzeb. In Aurangzeb, The Life and Legacy of India's Most Controversial King, published with Stanford University Press in 2017, she offers a rich and detailed biographical account of his social, political, and intellectual context. The narrative unfolds through both a chronological portrait of the 17th century Mughal imperial world and a thematic account of Aurangzeb's administrative governance, the moral underpinnings of his self-perception, and questions of religious diversity and intolerance. In our conversation, we discuss the textual sources we can use for South Asian history and the challenges they pose to modern readers, the early Mughal Empire, Aurangzeb's competitive climb to rulership, state security and uprisings, the construction of moral leadership and ethical judgment, managing difference across empire, motivations and circumstances for temple destructions, and Aurangzeb's hallmark policies, final years, and legacy. We also consider the challenges of doing public scholarship, hate mail, and the benefit of bringing the historical record to bear on modern debates. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now my conversation with Audrey Trushke about Aurangzeb, the life and legacy of India's most controversial king. Welcome, Audrey. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. Actually, thanks for returning to us. Uh, it's nice to have you back on the show. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. So um, some listeners may remember that we talked about your first book, Cult- Culture of Encounters, uh, a few years ago now. Um, where you gave us, uh, you know, a little bit of your background. Um, but since some listeners might be coming to this uh, conversation for the first time, um, can you give us a little bit of background about um, how you became a historian of South Asia, how you got interested in Islamic studies, uh, and perhaps how this project started to emerge out of some of the other scholarship that you've already done? Sure thing. So I'm afraid that the the story of how I became interested in all of this is actually uh, sort of frighteningly boring and dull. Um, <laughs> you know, essentially, my my entry into the world of South Asian studies uh, it, it's it's an academic love, and it started at the University of Chicago, where I did my undergraduate work in in the early 2000s, and I it started with Hinduism. I took a course on Hinduism. I found it really interesting. 
I thought, why don't I learn Sanskrit? And if that seems like a leap to you, like, why would you start learning Sanskrit at the age of 18? Uh, keep in mind, I'm at like the nerdiest college in the country. So, you know, it seemed much more normal. <laughs> it seemed normal then to me. So then I started learning Sanskrit and, and then I was sort of hooked. Um, the Islam side of things came a little bit later towards the end of my undergraduate career and then really sort of blossomed in graduate school. And I ended up sort of for my dissertation work, working on sort of Hindu Muslim encounters, Sanskrit Persian encounters as I, as I preferred and still prefer to, to think of them and sort of, you know, categorize them. Um, and, and then, you know, things have sort of progressed from there. Um, so I decided to write a book on, on Aurangzeb Alamgir in particular for a number of reasons. Uh, one, no one had done it in quite some time. Um, you know, people write books about Akbar, right, the third Mughal emperor, like every year, it seems. Uh, but no one had really, really, you know, wanted to take up um, the, the, the subject of Aurangzeb, the sixth Mughal emperor, uh, for quite some, some time. Another reason why I decided to write the book uh, has to do with the sort of vehement response and, and sort of emotional, you know, a swirl of emotions that surround Aurangzeb in modern times. And that's, of course, perhaps related to the first reason. You know, I think not that many people had a stomach for, for dealing with that. Um, but basically, you know, one thing that happened was, I think in 2015, I, I gave an interview about my first book, Culture of Encounters, uh, to the Hindu you know, major English medium uh, Indian newspaper. And I said all this stuff about Akbar that I thought was like edgy and controversial and might rub people the wrong way and would like spur interest in the book. And no one cared. Still no one cares. I've still never heard from a living soul about anything I said about Akbar in that interview. And it, I said two lines on Aurangzeb that were, in my opinion, completely unobjectionable. No historian would even blink, right? They were just so bland and obvious. And I felt like the world exploded at me. I got emails. I had people, you know, contacting me on social media. People wrote letters to the editor. I didn't even know you could write to the editor of a newspaper to complain about an interview, but you can. And I sort of thought, wow, this, this is an opportunity. You know, historians have progressed in our thinking on Aurangzeb Alamgir in the last couple of decades, and no one has translated that for a popular audience. And so why not try? Right. And, you know, of course, as every historian does, you know, add, add my own spin and own interpretations, um, you know, and, and sort of my own, you know, particular viewpoints, you know, to to the study of Aurangzeb's life and reign. And so I did. And then the book is is the product of that attempt. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's interesting how these things uh, emerge. Um, so, um, you know, obviously, Aurangzeb is kind of in the popular imagination right now. Uh, he, he's not just a historical actor. So can you can you give us a, a kind of a, a flavor, a taste of this, uh, the kind of modern myth around him? Um, and why maybe explain why he's so important to kind of modern South Asian imaginations? Sure. So Aurangzeb is everybody's favorite Indian Muslim to hate, right? And that's true for the past, it's true for the present. People, people imagine him as this sort of proto-ISIS figure, the Osama bin Laden of his day, this fanatic Muslim guy who wanted nothing more than to crush Hindus at every turn. In that sort of description, there's clear Islamophobia, rightness, sort of, you know, dehumanization of Muslims overall as a category. Uh, and in the Indian political context, that's really the point in this, of, of demonizing Aurangzeb. It's not about Aurangzeb, the guy who died in 1707, right? It is, Aurangzeb serves basically as a dog whistle to signal the acceptability of hating on present day Indian Muslims. Right? So Indian Muslims are slightly over 14% of the population of the modern nation state of India. And they are under increasing pressure, um, threats about their citizenship, and increasing extrajudicial violence against them. Uh, you know, we were seeing an increasing number of lynchings over the last several years. And so Aurangzeb is part of that. The modern myth of Aurangzeb is is very dangerous because it results in the loss of lives and livelihoods and, and pressure on modern day Indian Muslims. It also, from a historian's perspective, it prevents us from getting back to the historical Aurangzeb Alamgir. And you know, when you do history, when you approach the past, you always start in the present day, 
There's no way around that, right? I live in 2020 like everyone else. And so in the book, I start with the present day at that point, you know, I guess 2017. Um, and, and I talk about, you know, Aurangzeb the myth, you know, the, this Osama bin Laden sort of figure. And I name it, I describe it, I say a little bit about where it comes from. It has roots in the colonial, in colonial era uh, scholarship. And I, I talk about what it does today. And through that, I try to then strip away, right? Sort of, you know, pierce the fog of Aurangzeb the myth so that we can get back to, to Aurangzeb the man, the guy who lived and ruled and reigned in, in India. Yeah, and uh, you, you do a really good job of this. Um, I, I should mention so listeners know that it really is a, it's a very kind of clear and uh, engaging read. I mean, just as kind of uh, enjoyable enjoyable book. Um, but the other thing that I think helps it along is the, the way you've constructed it. Um, so, you know, uh, as a biography, you take both this kind of chronological, uh, but then also this thematic approach. And, um, you know, we're, we're both nerds, I would assume. So maybe you could t- tell us a little bit about uh, what made you take this approach Um you know, ideas about constructing a biography as a historian, um, were there perhaps models that you had in mind that, that inspired uh, your, your choice to construct it in this way? Mm, that, that's a great set of questions. So maybe I should start with this. Biography is generally considered to be the sort of worst form of history, right, by, by sort of, you know, proper Paka historians. Um, and the, I think the reason for that is that when you're telling the story of someone's life, you're, you're sort of bound to that narrative in, in a sense, right? You know, because their life unfolds in certain ways and there are certain key events. And so a question arises, which is, does telling the narrative of one individual's life actually help us explain change over time, right? Which is the sort of baseline thing that historians are always trying to do is explain broader social changes, religious changes, whatever sorts of changes those things are. Um, And so for me, you know, I like biography. I know some of my colleagues think it's a little trashy, but you know, I, I can live with that. Um, I, I think it's a great way to to reach a more popular audience. Um, and I also just think it's important, right? People, you know, all of us like and really need stories about individuals. It's, you know, and Orange of Alamgir is, you know, in terms of individuals who shaped the the sort of you know the sort of times in which he lived is a rather important character. Um, So I do think that the biography is important and that's why I follow chronology in the book to some degree, but then I didn't, I didn't want to be bound by that and sort of lose sight of larger historical trends. And so that's where some of the more thematic sections of of the book come in Um, and, you know, sort of looking at things through a different lens. You know, did I, did I have models? Um, not really for the sort of mix of chronology and, and thematic focuses, foci. Um, you know, I'm sure other people have done that. Uh, I would be hard pressed to, to come up with them for sure. myself, however. Um, so starting at the beginning, you, you open up with this chronology um, focusing on uh, Aurangzeb's youth and upbringing and, and family. Um, so w- can you tell us about the context uh, in which he was nurtured, uh, what were his royal family relationships like? Um, and perhaps even take take a kind of broader perspective and, and let us know what we need to kind of know about the Mughal kingdom in general to, to understand him. Hmm. So Aurangzeb was the third son of Shah Jahan. So his father was the fifth Mughal emperor. His father controlled the, the most powerful, the largest, probably the most populous and wealthiest empire in the entire world at this point in time. And Aurangzeb was born into an environment and a set of cultural you know, mores and customs that dictated that one son would get the throne. But no one knew which one. Right? There, there's no primogenitor in the Mughal Empire. There's no assumption that the eldest son ascends the throne. And th- this is a, a sort of point of much misunderstanding in modern times. Um, and it's because we're all Eurocentric, even when we don't realize it, right? Many, when people think about kings and queens, they usually are thinking about European ones. And primogenitor is a pretty common concept in, in European monarchy, but it's just non-existent in Mughal India. Instead, ha- it was 
the, the way that one, you know, one decided who ascended the Mughal throne was that all the brothers, whoever was sort of, you know, left alive, right? Keep in mind, infant mortality is pretty high in this in pre-modernity. So whoever is left alive and makes it to adulthood and is a man and is the son of the king get, has an equal claim and they fight it out, right? And whoever is able to marshal the resources, get enough allies and conduct himself well on the battlefield and that's important, right? The, the Mughal Empire is a land-based empire invested in expansion. Okay? So whoever is able to do that and wins gets the throne, right? The peacock throne, um, as, as it's called, which is the peacock throne was a, actually a very a specific throne. Um, it was supposed to be incredible. It was gold. It had all these jewels. Um, it, you know, it, it no longer exists. Nadir Shah destroyed it in the 18th century. But anyways... So Aurangzeb is born into this environment. He's the third son of a king. He ends up by the time he reaches adulthood, around the age of 14 to 15 in, in Mughal culture, um, with four full-blooded brothers, which usually they're half-blooded, but Shah Jahan had a favorite wife. Or sorry, he has th- three brothers. I misspoke. So there are four brothers total. So what happens next is, is a sort of spectacular war of succession, right? They, they're not often... In fact, I don't think there had ever been four brothers who were sort of all well positioned to, to make a claim to the throne. Um, so the, the war of succession that or- in which Aurangzeb came to power was the most spectacular and, the, and probably the bloodiest in, in Mughal history. It lasted almost two years, uh, but Aurangzeb won. And he won over, most notably, Shah Jahan's favorite son. Right, the Mughals did play favorites, and Shah Jahan had a clear favorite son. His name was Dara Shako, so the eldest of Shah Jahan's sons. Um, and Shah Jahan sort of wanted Dara to, to take the throne, but Shah Jahan had no power to make that happen. Um, so Aurangzeb beat his brothers. Uh, he killed two of them. He would have killed the third if he could have found him, but the third, the third one uh, managed to flee from, from South Asia before Aurangzeb got to him. One thing I want to emphasize is that this is entirely normal in the Mughal Empire. And this is, again, this is a point that's very hard for people today because it looks so bloodthirsty, right? It looks so gratuitous. And, you know, other historians, and I agree with them, have made the argument that the wars of succession were not gratuitous at all. Uh, It was actually healthy in a way that the Mughal Empire sort of rejuvenated itself and particularly brought new groups into the fold as they sort of were, were sort of, uh, they chose to back one prince or the other. And then once one guy had sort of, you know, won the whole thing, he would sort of integrate everyone then into the Mughal Empire. So it had this sort of integrative function. But the key point, I think, as a sort of larger historical point here is that we can't judge the past by the standards of the present if we want to understand anything about history, right? You can't just come along and apply modern day standards to the past. But in my opinion, then all you need to know is that you're talking about pre-modernity to to sort of assess that you're not going to like what you see. Right. This is a world long before, you know, human rights and, you know, all men are created equal and and any sorts of ideas like that. Right. This is a pre-modern world of empires. And so I choose to try to understand that world on its own terms. Right. And so, you know, how I sort of present Aurangzeb's childhood in the war of succession in the book is very much an attempt to model what that looks like and what it then enables us to understand about the past. Hmm. Now, um, you take us through kind of uh, the, the the broader arc of uh, Aurangzeb's uh, reign, um, and one of the one of the themes I think that um, you point out here is this idea of him being a, a just king. Um, but it also seems to be uh, a question of kind of um, continuity and innovation, also um, in terms of what what became the policies he wanted to support. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about um, how he continued uh, some Mughal practices and policies while also modifying uh, things to suit his own desires? Um, and what, what would you say are some of the main uh, you know, hallmark policies uh, during his reign? So let me begin with that, with sort of what I'm, what I'm, what we're arguing against, in a sense, uh, sort of you know the sort of modern ideas that shape our thinking around that question, which is the idea that that Aurangzeb. So this is the bad modern idea, 
which is as follows, that, that Aurangzeb ascends the throne and he destroys everything that was good about the Mughal Empire. He turns his back particularly on everything that Akbar, his great-grandfather, had done. Right? And there's this sort of Akbar Aurangzeb dichotomy. Akbar is like the good Muslim king, and Aurangzeb's the bad Muslim king. So that's what, what we're sort of working against. Um, and I make the argument that, you know, in a, sen- in a sense, this is such a bland historical argument, but in that context, it becomes very controversial, which is that, of course, Aurangzeb didn't come in and just start not acting like every other Mughal king and being totally different. That would make no sense and really be incomprehensible. Instead, he continues some Mughal practices, as the Mughals had always done, and others he changes and sort of adds his own stamp to, right? And as I said, I mean, it's... it's, it's and it's in a sense so bland, right? Because how could it be any other way? Um, so what that looks like on the ground, a couple of concrete examples. So Aurangzeb holds court every day, sometimes twice a day for, for the overwhelming majority of his life, right? Excepting, you know, when he's, you know, on sort of, you know, in the thick of campaigns and things like that. This was a really normal thing. The Mughals had long held regular court, um, you know, and this had been part of their idea of justice, which is a sort of very Persian or Persianate idea of justice. It's not what we would call justice today. Um, But the idea that that the king was somehow available and sort of adjudicating over various aspects of his empire. So he continues that. other, you know, what, what are other things I would name? So there, there is an idea that, that Aurangzeb was somehow very uncultured, right? And this is a, another bad popular modern idea, right? That, you know, he, he wasn't super into music. He didn't like this. He didn't like that. Um, but one thing he actually does, I think, is very interesting. So the Mughals had long been invested in these sorts of um, big patronage projects where they pay a bunch of people to produce something incredible. Right. So, you know, Jahangir's reputation in this regard, uh, he's the fourth Mughal king, is that he's really into paintings. Akbar, the third Mughal king, uh, was into all sorts of stuff, but particularly, you know, he's, he's really into translations from Sanskrit. He produces these sorts of lavish Persian translations of Sanskrit text. For Aurangzeb, the sort of, def- you know, the, the ma- probably the most important text to come out of his direct patronage is the Fatavoye Alamgiri, which is a sort of collection and compilation of Hanafi law codes. And Aurangzeb pays hundreds of ulama to do this. The Fantavoye Alamgiri was used across Aurangzeb's empire. It had a practical function, right? So sort of connecting with the whole justice, good governance, which was, you know, a sort of borderline obsession of Aurangzeb's. Um, it's actually still used today, right? It's actually still considered a valuable compilation, right? So continue, continuity with the sort of big patronage stuff, but, you know, not focused on translations or paintings, but rather on justice. Now, uh, one of one of the big challenges that he faced was kind of overseeing this this vast kingdom, um, and kind of managing this massive imperial bureaucracy. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how how he did this? How did he deal deal with administrators? Uh, what uh, made appointees valuable for for governance for him? Mm. So. The Mughal Empire had a vast bureaucracy. Uh, it, I mean, it was very unwieldy in many regards. And Aurangzeb, he was really mixed as an administrator and really mixed at different periods of his life. Early on as a prince, I mean, he spends over 20 years sort of shuttling around Shah Jahan's empire and, and doing various administrative tasks in addition to, you know, conducting battles and things like this. Uh, and he's pretty good. Like, he's a good administrator. Yeah, he has a very strong reputation in that regard. That's part of why certain groups back him in the War of Succession. Um, and early in his empire, he appears to be decent at this. But later on, the, you know, the you know, the wheels really come off, so to speak. Um, and, you know, in the later years of his life, he, he sort of wanders around the Deccan in southern India, trying to expand his empire to no sort of greater goal. And we have these letters from him to administrators and to his sons, where he sort of bemoans that they're doing all sorts of incorrect things. You know, they're, they're skimming off the off tax collections and, you know, there, there's highway banditry and robbery that they're not taking care of. Um, they're not protecting their cities and, you know, their populations, you know, correctly. Um, and he sort of tells them, you know, shape up, but that doesn't actually appear to happen, right? He appears rather toothless in this regard. Um, so, so Aurangzeb, he was very 
invested and cared a whole lot about good governance, but whether he actually delivered that, uh, that's that's much more variable. One thing I will note is that in terms of his administrators, it's important that there was no religious litmus test, right? He didn't care that much if you were Muslim or Hindu, as long as you were serving the Mughal state. And that, that sort of works the other way too, right? If you do something against Aurangzeb in the Mughal state, he doesn't care who, who you are, he's going to go after you, right? Um, and, and that's an issue that becomes sensitive today when he you know, goes after people like Guru Tegh Bahadur, right? The, one, of the, one of the Sikh gurus, right? Aurangzeb didn't care that he was a Sikh guru. His religious stature would not save him from Mughal wrath because Aurangzeb perceived him as a state enemy. Right? That's sort of the end of the story so far as Aurangzeb Alamgir is concerned. But returning to his administrators, so there was no religious litmus test. Aurangzeb didn't invent that. He inherited that. Okay, so that's, that's a clear case of continuity with, with earlier Mughal emperors. Uh, but one thing that he does is he actually increases Hindu participation in the upper levels of the nobility significantly, right, by over 50% as compared to Akbar, Jahangir, and Shah Jahan. So to put that another way, Hindus were a, were a greater percentage of upper-level Mughal administrators under Aurangzeb than under any prior Mughal king. This is not because Aurangzeb loved Hindus and wanted to see them succeed or something like that, right? You know, th- this is not some, some fairy tale vision here. Uh, but rather, th- this was a practical strategy. It really had to do with Aurangzeb conquering more territory in the Deccan in South India and needing to integrate Marathas in, into the imperial nobility. To the extent that people had a problem with that, and some people did because it, it sort of changed the nature of, you know, the sort of makeup of the nobility significantly. Uh, the biggest group that objected, as far as I can tell, were really Rajputs. And that's something that is impossible to understand if you think in terms of the modern categories of Hindu and Muslim, these sort of overarching religious groups. But in pre-modernity, people didn't think like that, especially on the Hindu side of things. Rajputs saw themselves as Rajputs, right? And for them, the Marathas were very different. They were different in terms of culture, language, and in terms of caste and class, right? And then so they were not particularly welcome in, in high numbers so far as they were concerned. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah um this this kind of leads into uh, a chapter a little bit later in the book but i think it's probably useful to talk about now because kind of ties in with this this idea of kind of managing difference across the empire but then also uh issues about this kind of litmus test of religious identity that you mentioned um so part of this um you know, as somebody who's coming from religious studies, uh, you know, you kind of make the argument that trying to think about Hindus in the 17th century Mughal state as a category um, doesn't doesn't work. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit more about why it's difficult to assess some sort of broad treatment of Hindus under Aurangzeb, which I think is what the uh, a, a kind of modern myth is saying, right? There's this broad treatment of Hindus, but I think you're you're showing historically that's not really it's that's more challenging than we can make a claim to um, related to these ideas of region and caste and sectarianism and these kind of things. Is this question making sense? Absolutely. So, okay. okay I, I, well, I think we'll, we'll see. We'll see if my answer is what what you're getting at. So, uh, many people have debated for for several decades now. 
you know, sort of when, when does Hinduism come into existence? When does it make sense to start talking about this, this unified religion? Um, and for me as a historian, you know, the sort of key guiding questions here are, you know, one is sort of basic linguistic one, like, like where did, where do these terms come from and when do we start using them? But then also a, v- a very practical one, which is what is talking about Hinduism at particular points in India's past? If it's anachronistic, and it almost always is, what does it get us? What does it help us understand? Right? There's no problem, especially for historians, um, of applying modern categories and ways of thinking to the past, as long as you're aware of what you're doing, and it helps you understand something. Right? But if it's not doing those two things, well, then what are you doing? Right? You're, you're, you're not furthering the goal of, of historical method and analysis. So, Hindu is it's not it's not it's not a Sanskrit word. It's you know not a Hindi word originally or anything like that, right? I mean, th- this is originally a this is a Perso Arabic word that is used by Muslims to describe originally the people of India, really northern India more specifically. Um, it comes to have religious connotations at some point before the Mughal period, but it's not ex- it's not exclusively religious, right? So when I am reading 17th century Indo Persian texts. Sometimes Hindu really means Indian. Sometimes it means Northern Indian. And sometimes it means something closer, pretty close to what we mean by Hindu today, a religious category. With Aurangzeb's empire, you know, one way to think about the question is, did Hindus ever act collectively as such? Or, and another question is, were they ever treated collectively as such? In terms of the former they essentially never act collectively as such, right? There's no Hindu movement to oppose the Mughal empire, right? There's fractious Hindu groups, we can call them Hindu today, and and they have a wide variety of responses, right? So Rajputs, for example, there are different Rajput lineages. Some of them are like full in on the Mughal empire by this point in time. Some of them are not, right? A couple of them rebel during Aurangzeb's period, and, and he puts down that rebellion. Of the two major Rajput lineages involved in the rebellion, the one put down is very successful. They sort of come back into the imperial fold very nicely, and the other does not, right? They, they continue to push back, and there's unrest for decades. Right? So within Rajputs, there's huge variety. As I mentioned, the Rajputs are not super into the Marathas, um, especially Shivaji, right? Shivaji is the wrong caste, uh, and he's not, he's, he's not classy, according to sort of Rajput mores and how you're supposed to act. There's this very famous scene, possibly the most well-documented scene from Aurangzeb's entire reign, where Shivaji, this Maratha guerrilla warfare guy, comes to court, comes to the Mughal court, um, and he acts completely inappropriately. Uh, we're not dis- there are so many records, I'm not clear what happened because the records are not fully consistent, but he spoke out of turn, which you do not do in Aurangzeb's court, um, and he appears to have sort of yelled or cried like a wild animal. Maybe he might have been writhing on the ground. Aurangzeb is horrified, and the Rajputs are horrified too, because the Rajputs and the Mughals actually share a lot, a lot of sort of cultural court norms by this point in time. So you see, when we start talking in these more specific categories, we can really get get into the meat of what's going on and, uh, and really paint an interest, you know, sort sort of reconstruct what was happening. And we can't do that if we if we just talk about Hindus all the time. Mm-hmm. Let me also just say a brief word on why this is controversial in modern times and why I really don't think it should be or I don't think it needs to be. So many Hindus, when they hear historians like me talk talk about this, all they hear is Hinduism never existed until the 19th century when some white dude came along and coined the word Hinduism. Right? That's what they hear. And that's not what I'm saying at all. I don't think any historian or religious studies scholar is saying that, right? Um, all religions and all cultures change over time. If they don't, they usually don't last very long, right? Um, And so, you know, if people want to believe as a matter of faith that, you know, Hinduism's core is in the Vedas and goes back thousands of years, that's great. Like, go for it. My questions are really much more specific about interpreting specific people and time periods and and, and moments in history and and charting that change over over time. Um, So I really don't think that there's a need to feel nearly as threatened by historical analysis as some people do. Great point. Um, is, the, is the other um, kind of through line that uh, kind of overlaps with uh, religion 
in relation to Aurangzeb is this um, this his policies towards uh, different religious temples, um, which I, I believe is one of the, the the arguments made by modern polemicists. But um, so, how how did he navigate religious tolerance uh, and state interest at the same time? What was his motivation for acting against certain institutions, which which he did? Um, and how how would you say his actions are used uh, today by Hindu nationalists? Mm. So today there is really this vision that Aurangzeb was like the ultimate temple destroyer, right? That like he basically never passed a Hindu temple that he didn't immediately demolish. Um, you see these crazy claims that, you know, Aurangzeb destroyed 10,000 temples or 40,000. Someone, someone asked me this the other day, right? Did he destroy 40,000 temples? No, of course he didn't. <laughs> um, and... You know, again, those sorts of claims, those aren't about history, right? That has nothing to do really with the past. That has to do with the present, right? And the the sort of um, positioning of the Hindu right specifically in terms of this kind of grievance idea, right? That they have all these grievances about Muslims in India's past. And so it's completely justified for them to go around killing Muslims in India's present, right? That's what that set of claims is about. As a historian, uh, I can't cherry pick evidence, Right? Cherry picking evidence is, is one of the worst sins a historian can ever commit. Right, I am ethically barred from doing that. And oh, I would never want to. As a historian, you have to take the whole picture. And so, yes, Aurangzeb destroyed some temples. There are, there are about a dozen confirmed temple destructions during his nearly 50-year reign. Slightly fewer are tied to his direct command. That means that there are thousands of Hindu temples that were in Aurangzeb's empire that remained untouched. In addition, I put together several dozen imperial orders from Aurangzeb that directed various administrators and so on and so forth to protect certain temples or granted land to Brahmins to build a monastery or things like that. So I have to take this whole picture. He destroys some temples, but he directly supports more. And most, he just leaves them alone. And so to explain this, there has to be a reason other than just anti-Hindu sentiment, right? Because if you think that Aurangzeb destroyed temples because he hates Hindus or hated Hindus, then you can't explain why he destroyed that temple in Banaras and not the one across the street, right? And as a historian, that's exactly what I'm trying to, to explain. Personally, I think there's a mix of political and I, I should say, I think that Aurangzeb's main reasons for targeting temples were political. And I think that in some select cases, there's a sort of subsidiary set of religious reasons, but not the anti-Hindu reasons that most people think. So on the political side, the key to understanding this is as follows. Hindu temples were religious institutions, and they were also sites of political authority in pre-modern India. That is a bit hard for many modern people to stomach, because we tend to separate religion and politics today. And of course, many scholars can tell you why that's a false distinction. But I think that the point holds that in general, to talk about politicizing religion today is like a bad thing. Like you don't, it's bad if you accuse someone of bringing politics into religion. And of course, targeting a religious site for violence, whether that's done by the state or by, you know, extrajudicial violence is like the worst thing ever, right? You know, to to bomb a church or a gudwara or a mosque or a temple or something like that. But this is pre-modernity, okay? Things work different. Hindu temples had long been sites of political authority. That goes back to before Indo-Muslim history, right? Before Muslims get, you know, arrive in India as rulers. So when someone is bothering you, like when a group of Brahmins in Banaras are, are perceived by Aurangzeb um, to be sort of causing peasant revolts, you know, surrounding the city, well, then you can hit their temple as a way to hit back at them, right? And, and sort of force them back into line with Mughal policies. That's completely legitimate, and, and that's what, what he does. In certain cases, I do actually think that there are religious reasons. Not all Mughal historians agree with this, um, but particularly for, for the Banaras case, um, there, there's this sort of, there's this moment where Aurangzeb sort of learns that Brahmins in the temple are teaching what he views as deviant policies. And he says that they're misleading Hindus, but he also says that they're misleading Muslims. And I think that for Aurangzeb, that misleading Muslims was perhaps, you know, that that was maybe the final straw. 
I don't know. I don't think that there were religious reasons for all the temple destructions. Um, but you know, one thing that perhaps is important to emphasize here, in addition to sort of the, just this sort of pre-modern nature of all of these reasons that it wasn't about just anti-Hindu hatred, um, is that it's totally fine to have layered explanations, right? Historians don't always work, if ever, in sort of, you know, there was this one reason, that's it, right? We're sort of all about the sort of multiple ways of thinking about things. Um, Because what we're trying to understand is complex, right? Which is why do people do certain things and why do they craft political policies in certain ways? Now, um, the role of Islam in kind of shaping Aurangzeb's vision of himself uh, seems to be kind of underlying a lot of this. Um, and you, you, you have a chapter on this uh, that kind of discusses how being a, a pious Muslim ruler uh, was important to him. So can, can you tell us like what, how did he see uh, or how did he interpret the, the boundaries of this? What, uh, what did he do to kind of express these convictions of himself as a, as a moral and ethical Muslim ruler? Um, and, and perhaps how was he received by uh, religious professionals or, or the broader public? Hmm. So Aurangzeb very much wants to project himself as, as a sort of proper Muslim king in many regards. And he's not unusual in the Mughal line in trying to do that. Um, although earlier rulers had, had played with other ways of religiously positioning themselves, most notably Akbar. Um, I think one thing that's important to say at the outset is that, well, two things. One is that I, I can only judge from Aurangzeb's actions. So, you know, people ask me sometimes, you know, was, was he really pious? Did he really believe? I have no idea. Right? You can't get inside anyone's head even when they're alive, arguably, and I certainly can't do it for a dead guy. I don't know if he was really a good Muslim. I don't know if he like really in his heart of hearts prayed and believed. What I can see are his actions, right? And I can tell you that his actions suggest genuine piety as far as I can assess. But honestly, I'm not that invested in whether he was like really a Muslim. Like who cares? He, I mean, he's just the guy who lived hundreds of years ago in that regard. What I care about is how he used religion on a public stage, right? And so in this sense, I mean, ju- just as Hindu temples were both, you know, religious sites and sites of political authority, and that may be hard for people to, to sort of stomach today, um, I think the sort of very rough parallel on the Islamic side of things regarding Aurangzeb is that, right? That, that you know, Maybe he was really pious, maybe he was not, but he used religion politically very much, right? Maybe that was combined with genuine belief and maybe it wasn't, right? But but he's definitely using it on, on a public stage. Um, I think another thing is important to say at the outset is that Aurangzeb's Islam, Islam, what it meant to be a pious, good Muslim to him, is not a vision that would be endorsed by most Muslims today. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you know, he was Sunni Muslim. Uh, he was also deeply Sufi. And people people forget that, but like he's still buried at a Sufi shrine, and that was as per his own wishes. Um, and he's buried at a Chishti shrine, right? The sort of most Indian of the the Sufi groups, so to speak. He was also very talismanic, right? So you know he you know he'll he writes you know Quranic verses on pieces of paper and flows throws them into the you know into floodwaters to make them subside and and things like this. Um, so he has a very particular vision of Islam, but it and it is one that. You know, for me, it really becomes the most interesting when it conflicts with his sort of role as the leader of a land-based expansionist empire, right? And there are multiple moments in Aurangzeb's life when his piety and his thirst for power conflict. He chooses power every single time. And it's not a mixed bag here. He, he always goes in for power. Um, and so for, and he, he does this even when he has to go against religious leaders, so, for example, when he first ascends the throne um, after the War of Succession, it's gone on for nearly two years. So something that had happened sort of in the midst of all of that, the War of Succession had been sparked when Shah Jahan fell ill and he appeared to be on death's doorstep. Everyone thought he would die. That's why the sun started fighting. But Shah Jahan got better. This was highly inconvenient. Um, because everyone thought he would die. Uh, and so by the end of it, Aurangzeb had not only, you know, won the war of succession, you know, killed or about to kill two of his brothers, driven a third out of India, but he's now overthrown his father. And that's a problem because it's against Sharia, as everyone understood Sharia Islamic law at the time. 
And so the chief Qazi, the sort of chief religious guide of the Mughal Empire, just flatly refuses to sanction Aurangzeb's ascension. Uh, and you need the chief Qazi to sanction the ascension. Like you need him to read the khutbah and the king's name and like do some other stuff. Um, and this had been Shah Jahan's, you know, Qazi. So he said no. And Aurangzeb fired him. Right? He just sent him packing and hired a more pliable Qazi um, in his place. There are other cases where this comes up, where, where Qazis and where the ulama um, sort of say things and do things that Aurangzeb doesn't like. And he ignores them, he dismisses them, he sends them to Mecca sometimes, which is the sort of polite way of saying, like, get the heck out of India and don't come back for several years. Um, so he is a pious king and he uses religion when it's to his benefit, but he doesn't bow to religion, right? When, when it would sort of cost him something in terms of earthly power. The last thing that I will say on this is that many people think that, that Aurangzeb's piety sort of influenced who he was as a king, right? And I actually think that that, that influence went the other way around, that Aurangzeb's experiences as a prince and as a Mughal emperor sort of changed the nature of his piety, arguably. Um, and I think you see this particularly with the treatment of Shah Jahan. Right, so Aurangzeb keeps Shah Jahan in prison for seven and a half years until dad dies. Um, and in those seven and a half years, Aurangzeb is ruling against Sharia. And a whole bunch of people in the Muslim world refuse to recognize him as king as a result of this. So Aurangzeb does things like he sends, he sends money and gifts, as you know, the Mughal kings had generally done, to the Sharifs of Mecca. And they send it back. They say, look, you're, you're not a legitimate king. Like Shah Jahan's still the king. Like, you know you know, come back later on, on this point. Um, other kings make fun of him. And I think that, that experience, I think it bothered him. Not so much as a ruler. You know, as a ruler, I mean, you know, you, you do what you got to do to maintain power. But I think it bothered him in terms of his piety. You know, one thing he does in the first 10 years uh, on the throne is he becomes a hafez. He memorizes Quran. Right. That's while he's sort of getting settled as, as a Mughal king. One wonders if perhaps, you know, having a sort of rough go of things as being a good Muslim king at the outset, maybe influence something like that. Um, there's all sorts of details we could uh, go into, of course. And uh, you bring in, uh, even though it's a short book, you bring in a lot of these really interesting kind of EGs to talk about uh, both the chronology, but then also these themes. Um, so I'll <laughs> encourage <laughs> listeners to, to, to read the book. Um, but uh, you, you also kind of take us towards the, the later years of his life. Um, can you discuss a little bit about what, what happens in his, his final years? How did he reflect on and describe his, his own achievements? Mm -hmm. So Aurangzeb leaves Delhi around 1679-1680, and he heads south to the Deccan to, to sort of conquer and expand his empire. And he never goes home. Going to the south to conquer, this was totally normal, okay? Pl plenty of people had done this, you know, I mean, go, going for even further back than the Mughals in Indo-Muslim history, but not going home is very odd. So one thing when we talk about Aurangzeb's later years that comes up is you have this, you know, sort of, you know, 20, I guess 26 to 28 year period where he's just like wandering around the Deccan. And for the first decade, he conquers some stuff. It's like sort of valuable in terms of land expansion. But after that, it's just like, it's almost 20 years where he's just like really achieving nothing down there. And sort of like, why didn't he go home? Why didn't he perceive that this was not good for, for the empire and for its longevity? Um, or did he perceive that and just decided not to do anything about it, right? So sort of some of the marks of his earlier rulership style, um, you know, the sort of good governance and the, the ability to expand an empire and keep control really fall away in, in the later years. He's just sort of this increasingly toothless king, like literally wandering around in camps in, in South India. Um, another thing he does is that he, he declaws the Mughal princes, so Mughal princes had long enjoyed a fair amount of autonomy. The kings would, you know, their, their dad would give them money and resources and the, the ability to rule parts of the empire. And because of that, you know, because of that, Mughal princes had very frequently rebelled. And I think, I mean, Aurangzeb himself, you know, I mean, he ended up imprisoning his dad for seven and a half years. Aurangzeb feared 
his sons and his grandsons, right? Because Aurangzeb lives into his 80s, so he has adult grandsons too. He fears them rebelling. Um, and in fact, I mean, he puts down sort of one notable rebellion by, by one son and drives him out of India. Yeah, and he dies as an exile. And because of that, though, he restricts the access and a bit of, of Mughal princes to resources. Um, and he denies them the abilities to sort of cultivate the skills that they'll need to both do well in you know, the coming war of succession at his death, um, and also the skills that they'll need to be a successful Mughal king. Um, I think that this is one of many factors that contributes to the downfall of the Mughal empire and the fracturing that occurs relatively rapidly uh, in the few decades after Aurangzeb Alamgir's death. It's not clear to me if Aurangzeb really perceives that what he was doing vis-a-vis his sons and grandsons is a problem. One thing that is clear is that he does have some regrets about his life. And, you know, people have different readings of some of his later writings. You know, he talks about having regrets about, you know, how he's a stranger in this world. He writes more than once about how he may not go to heaven, how he may well burn in hell for his various misdeeds. Some of this was formulaic. This was sort of like what you were supposed to say when, you know, you were kind of a poetic guy, which he was in writing in Persian at the, at the end of a long life. But at least for me, I think, I think that there's something a bit more to it. I think that some of this at least reflects some real thoughts on Aurangzeb's part. Um, and I think that that's interesting. It helps to sort of humanize him, right? He was not only a conqueror, he was that too, uh, but he also had had second thoughts, at least at the end of his life, um, and was very capable and interested in expressing them, especially through the norms of Persian poetry. Um, looking back uh, from the kind of bird's eye view, um, how, how would you say we can think about his legacy? Where, where should we place him in the broader history of the Mughal Empire? Mm-hmm. I think so. He's often seen as the greatest failure, right? He's like the guy that destroyed everything. I think in a sense, he's the greatest success, right? And I want to be clear, I don't say that to praise him, right? I have no investment in liking or disliking or justifying or, you know, Mughal kings or anything like that, right? That's all modern nonsense. Um, but in terms of what the Mughals were trying to achieve, he's definitely the greatest su- success. He expands the empire significantly, and he ends up, by the time he dies in 1707, he is ruling over the largest empire in Indian history, right? Roughly the same land map, the same sort of, um, the, sa- the same like geographical extent as modern day India, but the land mass is apportioned uh, slightly differently. Um, he'd integrated all of these groups into the Mughal empire. That was always part of the Mughals goals was like to bring all these people in. There are all sorts of new groups that he brings into the fold. He has continued with Mughal culture to, to a great degree and patronize people to do all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine history. In fact, it's impossible for me to imagine Indian history without Aurangzeb Alamgir, right? I can't run the counterfactual of what if he had never, never come along. He's that influential and important of a character. And that's why it's important to study him today. Not because we like him or not because we hate him or not because we want to understand, you know, not because we want to judge what he did is good or bad, because we can't understand how we got to where we are now in 2020 without understanding some of the critical steps that Aurangzeb Alamgir took in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, uh, being a, a, a nerd, I want to <laughs> not just end with the book, but uh, one of the things I liked about the book was that you, you, you basically kind of kept the footnotes to a minimum and uh, really kind of focused on on narrative and kind of helping us under understand him and his context. Um, but you also do then uh, in two places, I guess you, you have a, a, a postscript, uh, but then you also have a kind of bi- bibliographic essay about um, using med- medieval sources and reading pre-modern texts. How, how can we do that successfully? So, um, I mean, I'm sure lots of people who are listening are are doing similar things. So, uh, can you can you talk a little bit about some of the the types of textual sources uh, that we can use to get at Mughal history, um, and some that you use specifically for the biography? Um, and what what challenges would you say they pose for for modern readers? 
So let me first just say a, kind of a brief word on the sort of structure of, of the book and why, like, why I did it this way, like why I don't have footnotes, um, why I rather I do sort of keyword notes. Um, so the notes are there, but you have to do a little bit more work to find them. Um, so I, I really believe in public facing history. I think I think it's important in general, and I think it's really important in, in the sort of current, given the current political situation in India right now, especially. Um, and, you know, when you're writing for an audience that is not just scholars, right? I wrote the book for scholars, but I wrote it for other people as well. You have to, like, I really think it's important to, to think about how you're structuring something, right? You know, and in one sense, like, I mean, professor gonna professor, right? Like, I'm not gonna publish something without <laughs> notes, right? Like, th- that's, that is not gonna happen. So there's gotta be notes in there. But you don't have to do end notes. You don't have to do footnotes, right? You don't have to do parenthetical citations, which do nothing but, like, hurt your eyes. I mean, you know, so why not do like key keyword end notes? Um, and honestly, I mean, I got that idea by looking at popular historians, right? Like I picked up a bunch of, you know, popular history books and I was like, how do these people do notes, right? Like, you know, and in my case, cause I'm an American, like I looked at uh, people who focus on, on American history um, and, and that's how they do them. And I was like, okay, this is good. The notes are there, but they're not bothering anyone, right? They're not like disrupting things. Um, and then I wanted to have the sort of postscripts. I mean, the bibliographic essay, that's more of a scholar's game, right? For, for students, really, especially that, that are interested and want to know where to go next. Um, and then the other postscript on sort of historical thinking and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I just felt like, you know, becoming a historian is hard, right? It's, it's not just that you like, you know, think about what happened in the past and like write some stuff. I mean, there is a reason why we get PhDs that take years and years and years and undergo extensive training. So I can't make everyone a historian with, with a 40,000 word book, but that doesn't mean I can't do anything. All right. And I think sometimes scholars lose sight of the fact um, that like what we're doing is not obvious. It's not natural, right? Like there's nothing intuitive about historical method and scholarly practice. Like we've cultivated these things over many years and generations now. Um, And so like a little can go a long way. Like why not try to explain it to people? Um, And, you know, I don't know that I do the best job. I look forward to other people improving upon upon my efforts in that regard. Um, But I really think we should, should try to do it more. Yeah, no, I th- thought you were very successful, and I, I would imagine that the book uh, would get, uh, both because of the topic, but also the way it's written, this kind of broad uh, engagement. Um, and, uh, I mean, this leads into uh, kind of a related topic, because this idea of being, uh, you know, a public scholar, uh, right, making our scholarship accessible, um, I, I know from uh, following your work, you, you do this all the time, uh, but you, uh, in, in many uh, places, you suffer because of this. Um, and you've, you've written about um, the, the challenges of being a public scholar. Um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of help us think through this, uh, both what, what do you think makes uh, a successful uh, public scholar, but then also what are the, what are the challenges um, or the things you might want to think about in terms of impacts to your, both your, your individual life, but then also your, your, uh, role as an academic. Mm. That's very well put. Um, so I think that, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what the secret is to being a public scholar. Um, I mean, I think the first step is, is you have to find value in it. Um, you know, and especially for younger scholars, if you are still laboring under the illusion that like everyone thinks the public facing history and public facing work is valuable, like you, you're not deep enough in the academy yet. Like I, there, I, I definitely have colleagues who think less of me as a scholar and think less, frankly, of my more like scholar focused work because I also do public facing stuff. Um, that tends to be an older guard. It tends to be more male. Um, but those are also the people with the most power and most control in the academy still. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it's a corrupt system and I dislike it and I criticize it and I name it openly and discuss it like I am now. Um, but I also have to live within this world. Um, so yeah, like the, there, there are very real, real costs, both um, in the scholarly world and also outside of, of the scholarly world. So I get a lot of hate mail. Um, 
I mean, I get hate tweets every day. I get emails, I get phone calls, my bosses, you know, my chair, my deans, you know, they get targeted. I've had petitions against me. My ability to travel to certain areas at certain points in time has been compromised. I get death threats. Um, you know, I've had to have armed security when I speak about ancient Indian stuff. Like literally I had to have a guy with a gun outside. It was actually a woman, yeah, <laughs> a woman with a gun outside a room at Columbia University when I spoke about a 12th century Sanskrit text a couple of years ago. Like, I think this is ridiculous. It is far too high of a price to pay. And I choose to pay it, uh, but I don't think that everyone should, right? I think, I think that, you know, everyone has to make that, that decision on their own. And I, th- I think that, you know, how would I put this? A huge problem with the sort of current hard turn to the right and to fascism and authoritarianism in Indian politics, one effect of that is, is that it, re- it makes it too high of a price to pay for most people to be public intellectuals and to, to speak to a wider audience. And the blame there is not on scholars who don't want to do that because they don't want, you know, their family and children to get death threats. Um, the blame there is on the Hindu right, squarely, and, you know, 100%. Um, that said, especially because so many scholars do choose to step back, and so many scholars, frankly, do not have the sorts of privilege that protect me right? I have tenure at a research university in the United States of America. I'm a US citizen. I have no family in India. That degree of privilege is not shared by the overwhelming majority of my colleagues. And it enables me to do and say certain things that that they don't want to do and say. And it enables me to sort of do and say those things in venues that, that I pay a higher price for, right? Where you choose to speak makes a really, really big difference. Um, and so, you know, part of why I am motivated um, to continue to speak out and to, to be a public-facing intellectual is because I can, right? Um, and, it, you know, to the extent that I do have a sort of, you know, harder call for some of my colleagues, um, it is to the ones with privilege comparable to my own and yet who are choosing to remain silent because it's simply easier for you. I think you should reevaluate that position. Well, um, congrats on being so successful and paving the way for, for many of us. And I hope that more people will be in a, in a space that they can uh, join those kind of public conversations in ways that, that challenge uh, oppressive uh, regimes and uh, ways of looking at the world. So thank you for, for doing that work. Um, congrats on this book. Uh, congrats on, on all your work. Um, I, I'd love to hear what kind of things you're, you're working on now. Um, you know, in a pandemic, uh, <laughs> is, I, I do not expect you to be plowing through anything at the moment, but uh, what, what can you give us a glimpse of what you have perhaps uh, hopefully down the, f- down the road, um, what kind of things are you, you, you hoping to be going through? Mm, absolutely. So, um, so I have, I have another book, a third book coming out in January of 2021. It is called the language of history, Sanskrit narratives of Indo-Muslim rule. It'll be published by Columbia university press. Um, and this is, it's, so it's more on the model of culture of encounters. It's, you know, sort of like a normal length scholarly monograph, but I hope that I've taken some of the sort of writing style innovations I introduced in Aurangzeb. So I, ho- I hope it's like really readable. And the, the topic of the book, uh, sort of the premise is that, you know, we always look at the Indo-Muslim period of history, late 12th through the early 18th centuries, through the prism of Indo-Persian materials, right? The, those are the, you know, that Indo-Persian is the language that, that you know, Muslim rulers themselves used. They produce a lot of histories. That's what we read. Um, and so instead, in the book, I look at Sanskrit historical narratives that are focused on Indo-Muslim political figures. And in doing this, I sort of, I seek to smash two misconceived ideas at once. One is the idea that Sanskrit has no history at all, right? Uh, there, there is written Sanskrit history. People just have looked in the wrong places, I argue. And the second, you know, sort of misconception um, is that Sanskrit intellectuals had nothing to say about Islam. I think that that's based on a, basically an essentialization of Islam into high theology. Um, it's true that Sanskrit thinkers didn't have a whole lot to say on Islamic theology, but they had a whole lot to say about Muslims, right? Specifically, Muslim political leaders. And so in the book, I survey about three dozen Sanskrit texts um, that, that talk about 
you know, everyone from the sort of the Ghurids, um, you know, and Muhammad Ghori who comes in and invades the Cho and overthrows the Chohan kingdom in Ajmer in, in the 11, early 1190s, um, going all the way through the Mughal empire and the sort of fracturing of the empire in the early 18th century. And I look at what the, I look at a couple of things, uh, what these Sanskrit texts say about Muslims, you know, the sort of Muslim other. And the upshot is that they don't talk about the Muslim other is very Muslim and not so much as other either. Um, and I also sort of look at what does written history look like in Sanskrit? Why have we overlooked this for so long? And if we do choose to recognize written history in Sanskrit, as I think we should, what are the implications for, for historians today and for diversifying um, a field of study that has decidedly European roots, right? So I have that book coming out. I will be perfectly honest. I, I did all the work for that pre-pandemic, right? Where, you know, during the <laughs> pandemic, it's, it's just been proofs and stuff, um, you know, copy edits, that sort of thing. Uh, and I do want to say that, you know, especially for, for uh, you know, for, for other scholars, um, when this book comes out in January, it's going to kind of look like I've been busy during the pandemic, right? Um, but I haven't. I mean, I've been busy, just not with academic work. Um, <laughs> You know, because it's going to come out in January 2021. And I just want to make it clear that that is an illusion, right? So, you know, for other academics who aren't getting anything done, like you're not alone, right? I, I haven't been getting too much done during the pandemic either. Uh, like many people, I don't have childcare. You know, my life has been turned into like, you know, homeschooling young kids. So I'm educating just a different age group <laughs> bracket um, to the extent that I'm working on any writing right now. Um, m- most of my writing projects are relatively small and manageable um, and really focused on Hindutva. Um, I'm sort of, I'm sort of in a, a like modern analysis mode. Maybe it's just a corrective to having spent the last couple of years really reading old Sanskrit stuff. Well, uh, hang in there and congrats on the, the next book. Um, you really have uh, given us a, an archive to, to go through uh, as, your, as your own readers. And um, yeah, please, please stay safe and <laughs> uh, take care. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to my conversation with Audrey Trishke about Aurangzeb, the life and legacy of India's most controversial king, published with Stanford University Press in 2017. And thanks for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.